0: Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic today. We have been trying to host a number of shows that talk about dyslexia and co-occurring difficulties. And recently we um, had a podcast interview with Brian Butterworth on dyslexia and dyscalculia. Some of the other terms you may have heard include uh, dysgraphia, dyspraxia, ADHD and autism. And so someone with dyslexia could have one or many of those co-occurring difficulties. I think I've said on the show many times that I've got both dyslexia and dysgraphia. And so what we're trying to do is bring people onto the show to talk about those different co-occurring difficulties and how they may impact on someone that has dyslexia. So today I'm really excited to be talking to Autumn O'Connor, Autumn and I did a Facebook Live recently and we had such a great time and talked about uh, the impact of dyslexia and autism on the workplace. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring her on the show to talk to her a little bit more about her life and her um, struggles with autism and dyslexia, but also her many, many successes. Autumn is a qualified psychotherapist and her interest is in relation to psychology, the philosophy of artificial intelligence and autism. She's currently a director for a social enterprise, which seeks to connect, unite, and empower neurodiverse populations. And she's also an executive editor at Untapped. and she leads a growing creative team to develop educational programs to meet the gaps in lifestyle skills of neurodiverse adults. I really hope you enjoy our show today. Thank you so much for coming on the show uh, this morning, Autumn, to talk about life with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Would you like to um, talk a little bit about yourself, particularly where you grew up and what uh, life was like for you as a younger person?
1: Um, Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, well, I grew up all over the world. Like my family moved around a lot. So by the time I was about 16 years old, I had attended about 15 different schools around the globe. My first school that I remember really strongly was in West Germany, and uh, this was at the time when the Berlin Wall was still up, so we were in, on the west side of Germany, the British Army side. This was really hard, and uh, I, found, I found it really difficult, actually, at school overall. Um, in Germany, in Scotland, um, I was a really anxious, angry kid. I, I used to question the teachers a lot, on their uh, use of favoritism, uh, double standards, and gender segregation. And uh, it's funny in, in reflection that I seem to have a really strong sense of justice when I was a kid. Um, even though I wasn't entirely aware of the official terms used, I really felt angry and upset when things felt wrong or unfair, um, either for myself or others. And um this kind of made the teachers see me as a troublemaker and I was often accused of throwing tantrums for attention which was uh really hard. Um then when I was uh in New Zealand um school was also quite difficult. This is really when my dyslexia became like it really made itself known. How old were you then? I was uh, 9 it was 1980 eight, so I was seven. What I found most interesting um, was that I had issues in reading, spelling, and mathematics, but not in understanding those topics. So I could see when something was spelt wrongly. I could see that immediately. But when I went to learn new words, I had problems writing them down correctly um, during the letters and making the letters look like how I wanted them to look, even though I knew the word I wanted to say. I also had issues with reading out loud. Um, I couldn't follow the text. I always struggled with that, but I could memorize and I could understand stories. And similarly with maths, I really loved the problem solving. I really enjoyed that idea of adding things together, but I struggled to draw the numbers And I'd often swap numbers or swap the sums, like the division and the times or the plus and the minus. I'd swap those. And that made it really, really difficult. Uh, But what was most noticeable in New Zealand was that my sister um, was and is a savant. And she had this incredible mind. You know, she had a gifted IQ At that time, she was eight years old and she was doing advanced mathematics and advanced reading. And in comparison to her, I felt like I was really dumb. This was all magnified, even more so, because my mother decided to put me into gifted children's classes along with my sister. This is when I just saw other students and my sister just excel incredibly, and I continually was confused and I failed and I suffered without any help. And, um, yeah, that was really hard. So Um, you were put into
0: gifted school or classes. Was that for all of your
1: school or was that just for some subjects you were put into that? It was throughout New Zealand, which was mostly my primary school um, because at that time during the 80s, it was very normal to give kids IQ tests. And I scored quite highly in certain aspects of the IQ tests, um, particularly um, spatial awareness and uh, memory. And I often had this strange ability to just know the answers of hard math problems, but I couldn't explain how I got there. You know, so if it was a multiple choice thing, I could just, I just knew the right answer. And so my IQ was rated very high. And I was put into those classes throughout primary school. They were, they were segregate, segregated. They would take us out of normal classes, whether it was storytelling or reading or mathematics, and bring us to the library. And this was a special class for the gifted children. And I just found that really hard. It was really hard.
0: Yeah, it sounds, and it's very opposite to what a lot of um, people with dyslexia have where they're taken out of class to be put with the students that are struggling.
1: Yeah, I kind of wish that I had been put with students that were struggling because I would have been able to get more support to understand things. Whereas in the gifted class, you know, we I remember learning code breaking or rather being taught code breaking and Morse code and The history of code breaking and then we had to create codes and stuff like that and we were given books from high school and we had to analyze the books you know and i just pick the nice cover (laughs) and and then describe the book based on the cover i had no idea i hadn't read it and even then i still stayed in the class they didn't put me back in normal class i just stayed there gosh autumn you're so stupid and it was like oh
0: How frustrating for you and disheartening.
1: Yeah, it was hard.
0: Um, What was it like going to 15 different schools? I went to three in secondary school and I found that really challenging, but 15 different schools throughout your schooling must have been very hard.
1: Yeah, um, I really struggled to make friends because whenever I would actually find someone I liked, we'd move. And um, I also, because I've studied throughout school, in a lot of different schools where English was not the first language. Um, So I had to study in the other language. Um, Like when I was at Denmark in the Netherlands, I studied in Danish and Dutch. It really messed up my schooling and my understanding of subjects. Um, For example, in the Netherlands, I was fantastic at chemistry. I loved it. But I was taught in Dutch. And you might think, ah, chemistry, that's just numbers and letters and but it's not all of the the words that help you understand the chemicals and how they work and the processes of of how things work learning that in dutch and then having to come to australia which was at the end of my high school years and having to understand it in english i couldn't bridge the two so my my talent and love of chemistry in the netherlands completely fell flat when i came to australia because i I couldn't understand it in English, which is ironic because I am an English speaker.
0: It just (laughs) sounds like a nightmare trying to learn another language because how long were you speaking Dutch for? Because for some people with dyslexia, picking up a second language is really, really hard.
1: Um, Yeah, it, it was really hard. Again, my sister was just, she just had a talent for languages as well. Languages, mathematics and music, which I believe are actually all related in the brain. But she just picked it up straight away. I was still struggling. I, my mum was is Dutch, so there was a bit of extra help at home. But I was had to speak Dutch from 1994 till 1997. And then whenever we'd have family events since then, they would speak Dutch to me, not English.
0: So how was your writing in Dutch? Did you find that... The same terrible. issues in English happened in Dutch for your dyslexia? It
1: was, t- yeah, it was terrible, terrible. I, I could understand Dutch, but I couldn't speak it very well and I couldn't write it very well. And, yes, I had lots of issues with swapping letters as well, which is really bad, I found out, in, in Dutch, because there are quite a few words that if you swap the letters around, you end up making swear words. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, and this is like being a little um, 13, 14 year old and accidentally writing swear words in a, you know, it just was really awful. And also being in the Netherlands, I had to learn German, Latin, Greek, and French. Wow. And just uh, languages. No. <laughs> languages are so bad. It was so awful. And, um, it was not my forte at all.
0: I've tried to learn Italian, but I really struggled. I can speak a little bit of it, but to be able to write it, really, it's it makes me sad that I can't. But um, there are other things to do. And it just, yeah. But I do like going to Italy and trying to speak a little bit of Italian when I go over there because my grandfather
1: was, was Italian. Yeah. But it's not easy, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and it, it, I, I wish that I had that ability in I was, I guess I was very envious of my sister because a lot of the things that I really wish I could have done, she just could do. But at the same time, she used to say to me, you're so creative, Auden, you can just draw these amazing things. And and I can't draw. So (laughs) (laughs) I can't draw either. It's um, my sister sounds
0: a bit like your sister, um, but We definitely don't have the very, very high IQs that your family have. But she was always much better at other things like sport and art and um, music compared to myself, and it is very frustrating.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know if
0: your sister's older than you. My sister's younger than me. (laughs) So it's even worse.
1: (laughs) mm, She's just one year older, which sort of made it really noticeable that, you know, when I was seven, she was eight. When I was seven... I couldn't tie my shoelaces. I couldn't read a clock. I couldn't do simple math. I couldn't spell and I couldn't read. And she is, she was doing high school math, high school physics, high school chemistry, you know, reading books that, you know, that you would be reading in year 12. And that comparison of not meeting my milestones with her incredible brilliant mind. It was just this, you know, like this huge chasm between us and tumbleweeds going by. It just really felt um, quite alienating. Yeah.
0: It sounds quite traumatic, particularly having to change schools and languages so frequently. And it's a story I often hear between siblings, um, that vast difference uh, around academic ability and, um, you know, how they manage that between siblings as well and that frustration that you're not, you know, as good as your sibling. And then I, then you have to think then you're not as good as everyone in your class or your friends and so it can really impact on your self-esteem and your confidence.
1: Yeah, it, it really did. Um, you know, but the, the funny thing is you kind of really notice that As an adult looking back, at the time I just thought everybody was depressed and everybody was anxious and everybody was nervous. So I thought it was normal the way I was feeling. So I didn't flag it as this is a problem, I should tell someone. I just...
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I just thought it was normal that letters moved on a page. And I just thought it was normal that people couldn't spell like me or do maths like me. So I never really questioned either was there something, until I got into university, that's when I started to really realise something was wrong. But at school, I I guess because no one ever really, none of my friends picked on me or made a comment that I never really thought I was different or that something was wrong. Mm.
1: How old were you when you were diagnosed with dyslexia? Um, Well, this is where it kind of gets different. (laughs) I was diagnosed with dyslexia and dyscalculia when I was about seven. Because my parents were going through a divorce at the time, um, I remember attending a lot of psychologists and assessment places. So I can't quite physically remember meeting the person that diagnosed me, but mum did tell me that I had been diagnosed, that she wasn't telling anyone And she didn't want anyone to know I was stupid because of my dyslexia and you know that really that really hurt
0: did you have an understanding of what it was meant to have that label at that
1: age um I had no idea what it meant but I did know that my mum thought it made me stupid I felt stupid because she would always tell me that I'm stupid you know that I couldn't do those things that apparently I should have been able to do like read a clock and you know, be able to spell things and things like like next. Like I remember next because I had a little spelling book and I'd walk around the house with this um, when I was trying to write stories because I really wanted to write stories as a kid and I'd walk around the house and have this little book and then I'd get stuck on a word and go and find an adult and say, is this how it's spelt? You know? And at one point I was looking at the word next. It's this really strong memory. And I had spelt it correctly, but it looked really weird. Like it just looked like a weird word, like an X and a T next to each other, you know. Mm -hmm. I I went and asked if that was a normal word and I was told that I was being stupid. Of course I know what the word is. I know how to spell, you know, just leave me alone. It was this whole, and this really was a theme in my childhood with, with my mom. Any kind of issue I had, I was told I was making it up or That I was being silly or I should behave normal it was really really hard did you Um, feel any shame I don't know if I felt shame I, I don't know if I knew what the what that felt like at the time but I did have you know feelings of confusion um I really doubted myself and I I hated myself quite a lot yeah I just remember I was so sad I was such a sad child. Yeah, it was really hard. And yet here you
0: are um, doing amazing things with your career. So how did you build that resilience to get to where you are today? Because clearly your childhood sounds extremely traumatic for you and um, it's not easy for people to get out of that, those feelings of constant sadness. So how have you managed to become such a successful, talented woman?
1: i don't know i mean in a way it's a bit of surprise to me but i i think if i had to put my finger on something i would say it was my therapy that i have undergone since i was about 20. you know from from that that time of my parents divorcing i remember seeing lots of psychologists and doing lots of tests and I bounced around from psychologist to psychologist right from about being seven right up to 19 or so. And I never really gelled with them. I always felt really labeled, stigmatized. I felt really kind of like I was being examined, Um, like they weren't listening to me. It just felt really horrible and yucky. I always felt yucky. And then I met, or rather I was recommended, uh, my current therapist when I was studying natural medicine which I dropped out of but I was studying that degree and one of the teachers said I really think you should see a counsellor she's really nice and friendly you should just see her and um I started seeing my current therapist who's a psychologist but they got me in there because they told me it was a (laughs) counsellor and she she just language Yeah, it's amazing how it works, you know, and she, you know, she sat down, I remember the very first session, she said, Why do you think you're here? And my answer was, everybody thinks I'm crazy. And she said, Do you think you're crazy? And I said, No. And that really just started this beautiful relationship, therapeutic relationship. And she unpacked all of the stuff, all the trauma, all the pain, and she just sat there and listened and talked with me and helped me understand, um, put things into perspective and made me feel like I was worthwhile and that I was talented and that I wasn't stupid and I had good to give to the world. And she sort of brought me back into that idea that I have, that I am someone. So I'm, I'm really thankful to her. I still see her now for um, every now and then, and it's good. It really, really helped.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. It's such an important element, I think, talking about not just the challenges we face, but the importance of accessing a counsellor or a psychologist. I often speak quite openly about my um, mental health challenges, particularly after I was diagnosed with dyslexia and dysgraphia. We just feel it's so important to be able to share these stories so people can feel, one, that they're not alone and also that there is value sometimes in accessing help outside of your family and friends. Mm-hmm. you just having that sounding board and that person to reassure you that, you know, this is, you are okay and that you have something to offer the world and just because you've got this one challenge um, doesn't mean you can't be the best person you want to be. So thank you for sharing that. It's really important message for people to hear, and that's okay. So you've got um, you were diagnosed with dyslexia and dyscalculia. I always get that word. I struggle to say that word. When you were seven, and then as an adult, you were diagnosed with autism.
1: Um, yeah, that that diagnosis came really late. Um, when I was thirty six, actually. Um, and that therapist I told you about earlier, she was the one who had said to me, after we had been working together for a very long time, she was like, I, I think you might be autistic. I, we've worked on all your trauma and there's still some issues. And I just think maybe it's autism. Um, go and have a look. I can give you a recommendation for, you know, the diagnosis assessment, but go, go have a look and see what you think. And i um explored it and thought, "Oh God, this sounds like me that's that's really weird and then I got my assessment, which I paid for myself, and at the time I was on newstart, it was really mm, expensive I can, yeah um, they are
0: extremely expensive because you have to have three professionals to do that assessment
1: yeah it was it was expensive yeah. but i um yeah i found I found out that I was autistic, and it you know it really was this a shining light on everything it, it really helped me feel normal you know that all my a lot of my childhood experiences, a lot of the the flapping and dancing and jiggling about that I did as a kid and the critiquing teachers and picking out mistakes and discrepancies and and the meltdowns and shutdowns and all of these aspects and many more were actually autism. And it was like, wow, you know, like it really, it, it really just answered so much for me. And um, that was really the turning point, I think, because after I got that diagnosis, my therapist was like, all right, Autumn, how about you try and find jobs with companies that see your autism? respect it, and reward you for having that unique way of looking at the world. And that's how, I, that's how I found my current job. It's how you found your niche.
0: It's so wonderful that you've been able to find a position like that. You talked before a little bit about labels. Having a third label as such, dyslexia, dyscalculia, and then autism, did that, you talked about how it was enlightening for you, did you did it frustrate you that you had another label or it was just you were so relieved to find out that this was the underlying um, cause of a lot of the challenges you were having outside of your reading and writing?
1: I was really relieved actually the thing that made it hard was my mother's reaction which if you get a gist of it it wasn't great um she likened me to a retard. She talked about Rain Man. She didn't want people to see me as even more stupid. So there were all these sort of negative self-talk things coming through, but I didn't see that. You know, I could recognize that she saw that in me, but I didn't see it. I could actually see the positives and the label felt like a badge of honor almost, and then by by finding out about the autism and talking to that diagnosing psychologist and mentioning the earlier um, dyslexia, I actually gained a lot more, like I felt empowered to have dyslexia, to, to, to be autistic. Like it, it sort of felt like a like, you know, when you're in the military and you get these little stripes and mm-hmm. they all mean really positive things and you walk around with, like, look at me, I did this and that. It felt like I had these little badges and, and it was like, woohoo, look at me. <laughs> so it actually was, I felt really good about it and I wanted to tell people.
0: That's um, such a positive way of looking at it and framing it because it can be, it's quite common that people with autism have dyslexia and people with dyslexia can have autism. And uh, we don't always, you know, hear the positive sides of either, um, though there is a lot more talk now around neurodiversity and autism is really leading that, particularly in Australia. But, you know, to hear you frame it in such a positive way, I think is um, is wonderful and I think that will really inspire our listeners. Do you... Um Working in an organization where you can be your true authentic self, how has that helped you navigate having autism and dyslexia?
1: That's an interesting question. I feel as though being one's authentic self is really the the peak of existence. You know, I, I'm going to take a bit of an analogy here. I struggled for many years to find a a relationship, like a love-romantic relationship that was positive and healthy. And then when I met my partner, who I'm currently with, the reason why it really worked, no matter our differences, was the fact that I could truly be myself and that was accepted and that he could truly be himself and I accepted that. And I think that that authenticity, the being able to be who you are in all your weirdness and all your craziness and all your loveliness, you know, that that actually is what gives you the strength to do more, to achieve more, to be more in my relationship, but also in my uh, work situation. The fact that I am recognized as autistic, as dyslexic, as a you know, a person who suffers quite bad anxiety and depression, but that it's not seen as a negative, dark strike on me. It's not like I'm punished for it. That actually allows me to be calmer. And a lot of the challenges that come from autism and dyslexia for me personally is that when I get worked up and I get um, stressed, the, all of the issues become worse. and They really magnify. So having that freedom to really be who I am and that, it, you know, being vulnerable is allowed and and saying that I'm overwhelmed is allowed and um, being able to communicate when I have challenges or even if it's just slight things like I need an accommodation in a certain way, but being able to share that and not being rejected or ostracised or struck down, it allows me to really grow and... Yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question entirely, but it 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 really is that I can do more because I'm accepted.
0: It sounds like um, utopia, I hope we can create <laughs> workplaces like that for everybody because it just sounds you know as I was listening to you talk about that, you know, it's um and your experience around being able to be your true authentic self, you know, there are so many people out there that can't And it's sad to think how many people can't grow and, you know, reach their full potential because they're having to disguise or hide their dyslexia or their autism uh, within the workplace. So, you know, I think your story gives us hope around what a type of model that a workplace can look like that's inclusive of everybody and supports everybody's differences. So what type of work do you do? Um,
1: Well... At the moment, I I have two main jobs. Um, so I run a social enterprise which empowers neurodiverse people. So that's something I do at the moment on the side. And my main job is that I am an executive editor. Amazingly, I work with words <laughs> and I Support and a huge creative team of really wonderful neurodiverse people. We only hire neurodiverse in my role um, as an editor. And I create and curate a series of life skills courses to help uh, young neurodiverse people, adult, you know, <laughs> fit into the world in a confident way, um, and what makes this this job, um, working in editing and editing and managing that team, so fantastic, I think, is that the work teaching life skills involves doing it in a really advocacy focused way, so we don't stigmatise or um, create this environment that makes it makes you feel perhaps wrong. For whatever your perspective of life is or how you might be behaving. But we just offer all these different examples of ways that could help you and strategies that could help you cope or improve. And it's a very inclusive uh, set of courses. And I really, I really feel like, well, I feel two things there. I feel very sad that I didn't have it when I was a kid because I really wish I had something like that. But I also feel really proud to be doing something that has such a far reach and can do so much good for the world
0: that sounds fantastic and I'm really excited that we'll be able to share that with our listeners the work that you're doing and it's so important um, the life skills because we don't get taught them at school and I think um, for people with autism but also you know people with dyslexia life skills is really important because we need to be able to manage our money and we need to be able to read a contract and we need to be able to you know, be able to relate to people and be able to articulate ourselves. And so that gets lost in the mix of uh, academia when, you know, at some point academia doesn't serve you anymore and you need to be able to manage day to day. And I think that's what's really been lacking. So the work you're doing is amazing. Congratulations.
1: Mm, Thank you.
0: The work you're doing with Untapped—that that is another fantastic initiative that initially was focusing on autism, but you're broadening that out to more neurodiverse the whole neurodiverse group Mm -hmm. is that correct in saying yes yes um the editing
1: and curating of the life skills work is under untapped
0: oh that's under untapped as well
1: is it yeah that's untapped but we have created a sort of side business which is called be your best academy and that's where we run all of our courses through
0: right okay So untapped the second arm of it, that's where you support university students transitioning from um, uni into the workplace? Yes, that's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: that? Um, My work within that is mostly on the courses, Mm -hmm. but we have been involved or have been involved in... Uh, doing a set of articles and research around uh, employment, finding, so how to make a a workplace neurodiverse friendly, um, how to disclose your autism or neurodiversity in the workplace. um, And sort of a lot of stuff about hiring and retention and, Onboarding, all these words that I've I've learned since <laughs> since being the job. I didn't even know what onboarding was. I thought it was like a surf term or something, but but nothing to do with surfing. It's got to do with recruitment. Um, <laughs> I think it's just a new term. I think it's only been in recent years. <laughs> but yeah, it's like um, I'm learning a lot more about uh, corporate office sort of stuff since being with Untapped, um, and it is really different for me because my work history previously in offices has always been really bad, you know, being uh, ostracised for autistic type behaviours. And here now I'm actually learning how it works and, you know, being able to support young people who are transitioning um, into university or into employment and helping them with resources is just Fantastic. I even have met quite a few interns, like students, and talked to them about neurodiversity and about autism and about disclosure, and we're doing some work with someone at the moment with some uh, entrepreneurship, and it's fascinating, just the the passion that these students have, wanting to, to really contribute and learn, and I just love the industry that I'm in, I love that I can really shape society. I know it sounds very cliche, but um that I have this ability to connect with young minds and and help them see the value of you know being inclusive and being authentic and you know working on yourself. it's it's really quite, yeah, it's really quite magical, actually. I'm getting all emotional, <laughs> yeah it's
0: well, it sounds wonderful, and it's you know, I think it's. As you said before, if only these type of programs had been available when we were young, and it's you know through either sheer resilience or luck that we've ended up now being able to help support the young ones coming through. And I think you know it's such an it's such important work and uh, meaningful work. And I'm really pleased that we've been able to connect with you to hear about this work, and so our listeners can hear. Do you what would be the um, top three? recommendations you'd give an employer and top three recommendations you'd give our neurodiverse community when transitioning into the workplace. Can you sum it up in three, three points for each one?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Uh, let's see, employers.
0: What should they be doing more of from your perspective?
1: I think for employers, there is a desperate need for education. We mm-hmm. need to learn what these disabilities mean and what they look like and i know that that seems really difficult as well because everybody who is dyslexic like you've got dyslexia shay and Mm -hmm. different from me who also have dyslexia and different from you know joe blogs who lives down the street and different from you know everybody is slightly different So, of course, it's hard to show what that looks like, but I feel like we really need to do something about changing the narrative for employers, because employers, I think, still have a very restricted view, much like my mother had, holding this idea that we're less than or stupid or not competent. And while, you know, there are so many people who are dyslexic and autistic that are out there and doing amazing things. So we just really need to bring that narrative more into employers and get them to see the the strengths. I think that really is probably one and two. I think that covers one and two. And then the third point for employers, I think that they need extra help bringing someone into the workplace. This, this transitioning someone into the workplace. So when you can understand someone's stuff, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're then completely able to help them. There needs to be more awareness around that and programs, like an untapped has some programs where they talk companies through how to bring an employee on board and how to create a program that really supports them, uh, that really supports the, the new employee, the autistic or dyslexic or otherwise neurodiverse person. And those programs, I would love it if they were just standard recruitment policy. Mm. You know, at the moment they are, there's a lot of new programs popping out, like an autism pod, the DXC um, pods, um, there are specialist ERN pods. Exceptional, I think, also has some autism recruitment things. So there are some places that are specifically looking. And There's even a disability angle you can get in through the Australian government that allows you to say that you have a disability and get a special type of recruitment. But I would love it if it wasn't the segregation in order to be accepted. So this is, of course, where we're eventually trying to get to so that it being diverse in whatever your neurotype is, that that is just okay and accepted and seen as valuable. Um, But definitely where we are right now, employers need help designing these programs and learning how to treat the employee who is neurodiverse.
0: Do you think there's some conflicting information? I've been doing some work with someone from the UK around neurodiverse and she used the term neurodivergent. Do you think there's um, our language needs to change around so that it's simpler in the workplace for employers to understand
1: what we're talking about? Yes and no. Um, I think that it's important to be clear and concise when talking to employers. But while it is complex, I feel like that kind of represents a lot more the the nuances and you know flavors of being neurodiverse so having that is complex it's not easy it's not beautifully clear-cut you know if you're an autistic person you're not just taking everything literally and having meltdowns that, that that's it's not that easy that might be one person's experience but that's not every person's experience and I sort of feel like in a way language has the ability to bridge so many um, divides, and perhaps the complexity of it might help people to understand the complexity of the experience as well.
0: Do you think by putting us all together and saying that we're all neurodiverse, whether it's dyslexic, autis- autistic, ADHD, OCD, if you put us all together, do you think that waters down our individual strengths but also our individual challenges?
1: Ooh. The tough questions are coming out
0: <laughs> i know and we've we've already been talking for a long time, but i am so uh, excited to be speaking to you about this topic because it 's the first time um, we 've been able to bring dyslexia and autism together in a way it's um, and I think as the language changes, the, the dyslexic foundation is using you know more and more the neurodiverse term and but I also wonder if then it's sometimes we get watered down, and maybe if we get all grouped together, that then employers will just, you know, kind of one size fits all in a way because yeah. you're neurodiverse. So then you just get it. You just go on this program where, actually, there are um, significant differences depending on your diversity um, and strength compared to a different. So autism has similar characteristics as someone with dyslexic, and then we kind of pair off into our own specific issue. Mm.
1: Yeah, so, I see where you're going with that. And I actually, yeah, when, when you think about it like that, I actually have noticed that already just even in our writing. So when we first started our courses, they were aimed at autistics. And all of our research was about autistic experience, autistic and life skills. And then we were maybe about three or four months in, and the the you know flow down from management was it has to be neurodiverse and then it was really hard to find research you know people don't research neurodiverse people because from a research perspective, that would be really hard to group everyone together, as you said, you can't have dyslexic and o c d and and a d h d all together and call them the same thing so Something that I try very hard with our work is to tease out the different experiences. So when we are talking about neurodiverse, we might quote a research study that has autism and then quote a research study, which is ADHD, and quote a research study that is dyslexia and then kind of bring up all of those similarities through executive functioning, um, where there might be difficulties and strategies and stuff. but. In the wider world I am concerned as well because I have noticed even I've actually been asked the question isn't just isn't autism neurodiversity and neurodiversity autism Mm. it's like no no it's not you know I think that um well I mean it's uh like when when my boss goes out and talks to companies and introduces them to the idea of having a neurodiversity program he actually has to define neurodiversity and talk about all the different neurodi- neurotypes and give some strengths and weaknesses about them so people go oh neurodiversity includes autism and dyslexia and ADHD and OCD and you can even have acquired neurodiversities you know so there is this lack of understanding as i said before we really need education Mm. (laughs) of the general public, but also of employers.
0: So, thinking of then employees that are neurodiverse, moving into the workplace or are already in the workplace, what would be some of your suggestions for them and how they manage, or how your work can support them? Could be two questions in that one, sorry.
1: (laughs) Okay, so it's how do they manage transitioning?
0: yes and then how could our work help them could your program your life skills program could that help them in coming to that as
1: well okay well i'll answer them one at a time because otherwise i'll get confused that's fine Um, i'm confusing you and myself (laughs) (laughs) um with transitioning into the workplace or into university whatever it is that you most want to do as a um you're a diverse dyslexic, autistic, ADHD person. I really think, you know, if we stick with the top three, one of the most important things is you have to know you. And I talked before about mental health with my experience of being in therapy, but it is something that I think is really, really important. Because so many of us who have um, disabilities and Neurodiversities have struggled through school, through finding a job. Um, a lot. There's a huge amount of research that shows a lot of people actually have had bad childhoods, you know, trauma, neglect, and stuff. And when you carry all of that all the time with you, all the time, you know, it it makes sense. Your anxiety is going to get worse. Your depression is going to get worse. Your coping strategies will just go down the toilet. You know. And working on yourself, working on understanding what's been happening in your life in the past, but also on knowing who you are as a person and being okay with that, that is so powerful. And I think it really helps significantly. So that would be my first recommendation. Um, Find a therapist that you feel supported and respected by. And you might have to shop around. You know, like when I started looking for my therapist, it took me like six or seven years to actually find one who really got me. And it, it again, took me about another two to three years to actually open up to her. But um, <laughs> the um it finding a good therapist will really help. And then secondly, surround yourself with people who really, really support you. This is, I mean, I cannot emphasize this enough. So having a therapist is great because you'll start to, hear a more positive talk and go, ah, okay, that's the type of thing I should say. But then there are, of course, people in your life that are not healthy, that would be concerned, you know, that you might label toxic. And they might be your family members. um, But they could be friends. uh, They could be acquaintances. Just people who constantly give you negative feedback. You know, you're trying to reach your goals and they say, you'll never achieve that. You can't do that. You're not bright enough. You know, all these sort of negative words and phrases. And it is profound how much impact negative voices can make on trying to achieve the things that you want to achieve in life. Um, And just getting rid of those voices. If that means moving away from your family, they're the bad, you know, the bad influence in your life or... Unfriending that person who's really negative to you all the time, or you know, just changing that atmosphere and environments, so that you don't hear those negative voices anymore. That will dramatically improve the transition into that new new life that you want to make. And it is, it's something that I wish I had done sooner in my life um, with my mum. And uh, she's passed away now, so I, I certainly feel a lot more release from all that negativity. But um, having that, that freedom from that negative voice, it just is... Uh, it, you can do so much when someone believes in you. And I, I reflect on there are quite a few people in the autistic realm that are um, advocates and quite well-known... And when you hear their stories, you realize, wow, you had an amazing mother who supported you, or you had a brilliant you know, brother and sister who were always there for you. And, and it, it makes sense that they were able to achieve these amazing things because they had this positive voice constantly giving them the goodness and, and spurring them on. So, uh, number one, great therapist. That would be awesome. Number two, Get rid of toxic people, you know, live the life that you want. The third thing I would say is, uh, and this is sort of a bit of a double barrel thing, is get a diagnosis, yeah? Mm. You might find that the reason you're struggling, and this is more out to the people who obviously haven't got a diagnosis yet, you might either suspect that you might have a diagnosis um, or just really be struggling to hold down a career or, make friends or, uh, you know, succeed at school. Getting a diagnosis can really be very, very empowering and can help you realise that there's nothing wrong with you. You're just different. And um, this is something that, yes, it's hard to get. It's expensive to get. It's frustrating. You have to go through lots of tests. You need to talk to people about your pretty horrible problems, but having a diagnosis can just help so much. And for those of you who already have diagnoses, I would recommend finding the jobs that actually advertise that they are neurodiverse-friendly or autism-friendly This may be because they are a company like Untapped that actually is out there saying, hey, we're here for you. But it could also be other companies that just have, you know, like Google has an autism program. So it's sort of, they, they may not be out there saying, hey, we're really inclusive. Look at us. We're really awesome. But they do have this avenue that shows that they are welcoming. And it might just take a bit more research. But Use it to your advantage. If you have a diagnosis, find the places, the companies, the universities, the colleges, the schools that welcome your diagnosis and then say, hey, I've got a diagnosis. Look at me. I'm over here. I've got dyslexia. I have some struggles. How can we work together to make this better? And you'll find these doors just open up.
0: And wear your badge with pride.
1: Yeah, it it is... (laughs) You know, Don't go and make it about, you know, a poor me. You should never pity yourself and try to get pity from people based on your diagnosis. But I think it is important to recognise that it's part of you and it's, it's not a shitty part of you. It's not a crappy, it's not an evil part of you. It's not a bad part of you. It's just part of you. You know, like you might have brown hair or brown eyes or, you know, be a little bit... Um, you know have have thighs that you may not be super happy about, but the fact is that's you that 's you, and it's fine and so that diagnosis is is part of that, and I think it should be celebrated Well, I think
0: that on we should uh, end our interview on that note because it's such a positive way to end, and um, I think that you know celebrating our differences is so important and For those who want more information on your program, we can put that up on the website as well so they can have a look. But I think, you know, how you've summarised everything is so beautiful and I really um, appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up?
1: I think that the final thing that I'd really like to say is, um, you know, keep the faith. You know, if you're really struggling right now, um, the listeners who are really struggling, who are really depressed or anxious at school or work, you know, it it won't always be like that. It won't, the world won't always seem to hate you, that eventually the light will shine on you. And having this commitment and determination to keep moving forward and and reaching up and, going for your goals, that you'll get there. You know, I I have suffered so much in my life and it took me pretty much until I was 37 to just get out and change things. But um, in the past two years, I have, I feel like I'm living a new life and I think that you can too. And I I, I don't want to sound really like happy clappy or anything, but (laughs) You know, you can. You just have to keep the faith. You have to believe that there is a way and and, and just keep moving forward because I, I think you can be your best. I think you can make it. And um,
0: I think, you know, you're right, the best is yet to come and for you to have gone through all those struggles and challenges throughout your life and to come out um, at your, where you're at now with both your work but feeling so rewarded with what you do and you know, being able to live your authentic self is something that we all strive to do and I think you're just your story really is an example of how we're able to do that so thank you so much for sharing it today it's just been such a joy and a pleasure to speak to you and to learn more about your story and I think it's going to be really valuable for our listeners to hear your journey but also where they can get extra support through your program and also if they're transitioning from uni to work or from school into uni that they've got that support through untapped as well so thank you so much for coming on the show i hope you have a wonderful afternoon and you stay well during lockdown hopefully we'll be able
1: to meet in person at some point once we're out of this pandemic yes i think that'd be lovely thank you so much for having me it's been really nice
0: Thank you so much for listening to our show today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did speaking with Autumn and learning more about dyslexia and autism. To find out more about Autumn and all the wonderful work that she does, head to deardyslexic.com. If you haven't done so already, make sure you've signed up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we're doing at The Foundation. Sign up at deardyslexic.com. And don't forget... If there is anything at all you've heard today that was distressing, you can contact the Dear Dyslexic Foundation's helpline on 1-800-589-667 or Beyond Blue on 1300 222 And there's also Lifeline that you can contact on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening and bye for now.